Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to Equitable's fourth quarter analyst call and webcast on Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. At this time, you're in listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session for analysts. Instructions will be provided at that time. It's now my pleasure to turn the call over to Richard Gill, Senior Director of Corporate Development and Investor Relations at Equitable. Please go ahead. Thanks, Jillian, and good morning. Your main hosts today are Andrew Moore, President and uh, Chief Executive Officer, Chadwick Westlake, Chief Financial Officer, and Ron Trash, Chief Risk Officer. Before we begin, I'll refer you to slide two of our presentation, which contains equitable caution regarding forward-looking statements. It's now my pleasure to turn the call over to Andrew. Thanks, Richard, and good morning, everyone. Richard joined the bank recently to lead both our corporate development and investor relations efforts. In corporate development, Richard and his team are charged with exploring new avenues to advance Canada's challenger bank mission. While in investor relations, we are really putting a more concerted effort in place to close what management perceives to be the gap between the current market price of our shares and what we believe to be intrinsic value of our stock. Welcome, Richard. We have a lot to talk about, including Q4 and 2020's all-time record for customer and earnings growth of what I see as the next chapter for Equitable Bank. To my mind, the accomplishments of the past year and the past decade's track record of consistent industry-leading ROE are a prologue as momentum turns to speed for Canada's Challenger Bank, a bank now serving over a quarter of a million Canadians. On today's call, I will look to the future more than the past by commenting our outlook discussing our quickly expanding consumer-driven product offerings and plans for EQ Bank, our digital platform now with more than $5 billion in deposits, and providing color on our capital deployment plans in 2021. Chadwick will add details on our record-setting 2020 performance, our 2021 outlook and medium-term objectives. And Ron is here to address any questions you have about credit and risk management when we move to our Q&A. Of course, one of the rewarding outcomes of 2020 is that by being here for Canadians who had pandemic-related loss of income, nearly 100% of our customers were able to return to their regular payment schedules after taking deferrals. By this, I mean only 44 customers, representing just three basis points of our loan book from deferral at year-end. This is a very positive outcome for our customers and the bank. Starting with our outlook. You read the same forecast as I do, and the consensus suggests the economy will get off to a slow start this year, with improvements in Q3 and Q4, bringing annual GDP growth up to 3 to 5%. HPI is expected to remain relatively stable in the mid-single digits, while unemployment should decline slightly from current levels. That said, we are not a bank that grows with the economy, as the athletes have demonstrated last year. We aim to grow much faster as we take advantage of both fundamental and digital trends within our chosen markets. From a trend analysis perspective, we are bullish on the long-term prospects for different forms of housing, including multi-residential, that is a key focus for our commercial business. 
We think demographic trends favor our decumulation businesses and the opportunity this brings to us as we expand our reverse mortgage and CSV business lines. And we believe our concentration on lending in urban and suburban areas continues to make sense. For over 100 years, urbanization has been a relentless trend in Canada. This has not been the case over the past few months as some Canadians take advantage of remote work opportunities. Nevertheless, we are comfortable that urbanization will continue long after the pandemic is over because most jobs will continue to be created in cities. Most jobs will require at least some office space time and commuting in this country is problematic. Call it a revolution or an evolution. The pandemic also accelerated the adoption of life and value enhancing technology. Whether it's attending a fitness class at home, having a virtual doctor's appointment, or banking from home rather than a branch, the consumer is demanding what was once inconvenient now become convenient for them. EQ Bank has been the beneficiary of this shift, where innovation driven by consumer behavior and consumer needs creates financial accretion and lifestyle advantages and an easier and more transparent banking experience. EQ Bank is exceptionally well positioned to address the needs of a mobile-first future. We are set up for attractive levels of growth in deposits and lending for the long run. How about the near term? I would answer by saying that we set healthy loan growth objectives for 2021. In personal banking, our critical alt business is having a really encouraging start to the year. While the strength of our prime mortgage franchise was clearly demonstrated last year, as we grew the business in a time of attractive economics. Decumulation is destined to be our lending growth leader. Delighted to say that growth in originations and book value of our assets exceed our 2020 internal objectives as our decumulation businesses gain share. New products, new partnerships will add momentum in 2021. The CSV line of business is growing with plans for new products, an expanded roster of life insurance company partners, and more distribution allies. The outlook for our now $14 billion commercial banking portfolio is very positive. Here we have five business lines. We expect four to grow in 2021, with multis remaining flat as a result of assumed CMB capacity and levels of derecognition. I would encourage you to get to know our commercial bank. It has been an area of interest during some of my more recent meetings with investors, and we have set out our philosophy and approach to commercial banking on page 27 of the MDNA. There is a lot of opportunity here, and having spent last Sunday afternoon happily reading credit to remind myself of the underlying loans in the portfolio, I'm more convinced than ever about its resilience to credit loss. One of the many great things about our bank is that we have a broad selection of growth opportunities to pursue, and are nimble enough to shift and shape our book as market conditions change. You can see this in 2020 as we chose to tighten loan-to-value requirements in ALT, and put more focus on sustainability income in the face of pandemic uncertainties and still grew loans under management 7%. This brings me to the expansion of our digital platform. EQ Bank serves at the leading edge of our ambition to drive change in banking to enrich people's lives. The change we're driving starts with thinking differently about everyday banking services, how they are structured and delivered. Doing so enables us to innovate with purpose and create solutions that are immediately recognized as more convenient, more responsive, and more valuable than what's available elsewhere. This way of thinking is working. More customers than ever are joining EQ Bank. 
2020, new digital account openings increased 82% to over 173,000, with daily average number of new customers doubling over 2019 and deposits soaring 71% to 4.6 billion. In Q4, daily account openings were almost 190% over the prior year. We expect this momentum to continue in 2021, and we're already seeing it. This month, we surpassed the 5 billion milestone in deposits, and customers have further scaled to over 185,000 customers. It's quite remarkable to think that just a year ago, EQ Bank's deposits stood at 2.7 billion. The pace of deposit and customer growth has been outstanding, a testament to our offering and the efforts of our team. Value for customer comes from great services, great convenience, and great rates. We have all three. With the launch of the EQ Bank Tax-Free Savings Account, EQ Bank RSP Savings Account, and EQ Bank Joint Savings Plus Account, 2020 was a watershed year for new products, reflecting our ability to use our cloud capabilities to launch innovations quickly. All captured significant attention because they offer superior interest, no fees, and the no-hassle convenience of online account openings. They are worthy of our challenger bank credo. You don't have to take my word. MoneyWise just named EQ Bank's TFSA tops in Canada based on its competitive interest rates and user interface. We also added 20 new currencies to our international money transfer service in collaboration with TransferWise. Sure, you can transfer money elsewhere, but you can't do it as quickly, conveniently, and cost-effectively as you can here. There is a size economic benefit to growing EQ Bank as measured in the lifetime value of a customer relationship. Our projected value has increased steadily, while the cost of acquisition has declined year over year. Now the next chapter is here, and that means EQ Bank's service profile is about to expand to include more wealth solutions, an access card, and a digital loan solution. These are innovations are on their way in 2021, along with the launch of a redesigned site this spring. Looking at the big picture, including EQ Bank, 34% of equitable $16.4 billion in deposits were raised through channels we did not have five years ago. This substantial ongoing growth and diversification is critically important to our bank and will continue. Chadwick is going to describe the financial highlights, and I certainly do not want to steal his thunder, but I'm certainly delighted with how we did in achieving record earnings and success against our financial goals, even with the extraordinary circumstances of the pandemic. Equal has many advantages, including structure, temperament, and technology. But our most important is our people. Even with greater than 90% to 5% of our team working from home, Equal is challenging and succeeding. My sincere thanks to every member of the Equal team for a job well done under stressful circumstances. Nurturing a best place to work culture, which is reflected in our selection as one of Canada's best workplaces, in financial services and insurance in Q4 2020 has paid off in the form of best-in-class employees. I know it's really hard for an outsider investor to observe this, but our people are absolutely top-notch, and I feel so privileged to work with them every day. Speaking of people, I'm delighted that Diane Giard and Yonga Kim joined our board in December. Diane has an incredible record and background in retail and digital banking as well as risk management, having served two DCIPs over her career. 
Deanne is a real commercial and retail banker, and I say that with deep respect. Yonga has an equally impressive career in a role as a senior partner at McKinsey, advising leading financial institutions on a global basis, and now as a professor of strategy at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. The bank's governance is in very good hands with the right mix of relevant talent, experience, and perspective. I am proud of our sustainability efforts and will share details in coming quarters, including at our virtual AGM. Before moving to our 2021 priorities, I want to assure you that we will follow our tried and true value creation methodology going forward, which involves carefully allocating capital retained from earnings. I set out my thinking in this area in our 2015 annual report a few years ago and attribute the approach described there to making equitable the best performing bank on the TSX over the, both the past five and 10 year periods. We have an addition to our agenda for 2021 with five top priorities. One, keep enriching people's lives. This is where innovation, a passion to deliver the best service, and a commitment to create an empowered, engaged workforce coalesce with Equitable's traditional financial discipline. Two, efficiently deploy capital. This is a particular challenge now we are 110 basis points above our midpoint target range for CET1 at 13.5%. We do not know when OSPI will allow banks to receive dividend increases and buybacks, but we are ready and contemplating many options to deploy capital including resuming the dividend growth we had committed to our investors before OSPI imposed its prohibition. Three, continue to diversify and expand the bank's funding sources, services, and products by driving forward with new product innovations, EQ Bank, and product expansions at Equitable Bank, where we recently introduced U.S. currency GICs and USD high-interest savings accounts. Four, contribute energetically in key areas of innovation in Canadian financial services. This includes investing in our infrastructure to participate in real-time rails to improve how Canadians move money. This is well overdue and really critical to Canada building a productive economy as we build back from the pandemic. As well, we will continue to drive to open, bring open banking to Canada and digital ID to Canadians. We are active on both fronts most recently by participating in multi-stakeholder roundtables and working on some use cases. Five, challenge market perceptions of equitable, Canada's challenger bank. We'll be working to ensure that investors understand the capabilities of the bank we are growing and building so that we can close the gap between what management believes is fair value for the bank and the current trading price. As I mentioned at the outset, we will improve our investor relations effort and increase our activity levels as part of this program. Closing the value gap will reduce our cost of capital and deliver additional opportunities to create value to our stakeholders. I think our MD&A does a great job of conveying our position, how we have evolved into Canada's challenger bank, and the growth, diversification, and stability this delivers. It's a fairly substantive overhaul, and I encourage you all to review it in some detail. And now over to Chadwick. Thank you, Andrew. We're proud of how we ended 2020 with our best Q4 ever, and importantly, the momentum we have entering 2021. Our differentiated approach to creating value for Canadians translated into consistent growth for shareholders. 
with its revenue up 13% year-over-year in Q4. At just under $152 million, this is our strongest revenue performance in any quarter ever. Growth was not isolated to Q4. Full-year 2020 revenue was 12% higher at $557 million, even with our deliberate pullback in originations early in the pandemic. Growth translated into diluted EPS at 413 in Q4 and 1295 annually. ROE was 18.2% in Q4, reflecting our increasing earnings. A strong performance, and particularly so given that our excess capital continues to build. If set one was back at a midpoint range of 13.5%, quarterly ROE would have been 19.5%. Higher earnings in ROE primarily reflect higher net interest income from growth in core assets, complemented by gains on sale of insured multi-unit residential mortgages and a modest release of allowances for credit losses. Reported with our non-interest income, we view gain on sale as high quality income stream as it represents profitable and repeatable revenue in times of economic volatility. And it adds to our capital base, which will bolster further lending power and distribution to shareholders. While revenue continued growing at a double digit pace, our culture of disciplined expense management and focus on delivering the best efficiency of any bank in Canada continued, with non-interest expenses of $55 million in Q4, up only 2% year-over-year. This expense growth was mainly attributed to an increase in compensation and benefits as we expanded our FTE to 925 by year-end to match and enable our continued growth momentum. This trend in efficiency translated to 4.7% positive operating leverage for the year, with a Q4 efficiency ratio of 36.4% that beat our target. Loans under management increased to more than 33 billion, plus 7% year over year. This sets us up nicely to start 2021. Moving to business line comments, we successfully deployed capital in personal banking, generating asset growth of 1.1 billion or 6%. Our single family alt portfolio contracted in 2020 as a result of our deliberate origination pullback from March to August. But we have had a significant rebound in the last quarter with originations of over a billion dollars, which was also higher than Q4 in 2019. In December, we took back our market share leadership position. This is a testament to our very strong relationships with mortgage brokers across the country and unrelenting commitment to customer service. Our decumulation business was also a bright spot with balances that nearly tripled year over year. This is an important emerging business for Canadians and we are very pleased with traction in recent quarters, both in reverse mortgages and CSV lending. Our commercial bank also had an outstanding year with asset growth of 1.2 billion or 9%. Nearly 60% of this growth was in the insured multi-unit residential space, which we like because of its risk return characteristics. Conventional commercial loans contributed significantly to growth as well, as its portfolio balance increased $427 million or 11% year over year 
and 208 million or 5% sequentially. As a matter of strategy, we have shifted our sources of funding with 41% now coming from securitization, 34% from broker deposits, and 16% from EQ Bank. Where, for example, five years ago, 49% would have been from broker deposits alone. We expect to continue to reduce our cost of funds, including with the launch of covered bonds in Europe late in Q2 this year and more deposit note issuances. Both can be raised at very attractive spreads and lower than some of our existing deposit sources. NIM was resilient at 1.74% for Q4, up five basis points sequentially, and otherwise stable, excluding the impact of increased prepayment income. The backdrop here is that average asset yield in personal banking declined eight basis points quarter over quarter, but as a result of lower rates being offered in the market, consistent with Bank of Canada rate drops, and more of a shift in the prime lending with lower rates. And our commercial banking yield was two basis points lower. However, we are comfortable with these levels versus our cost of funds, which decreased at a higher rate of 11 basis points in the quarter. As I indicated, with our cost of fund strategy, we have a continued tailwind here, which also offers other strategic benefits. Earnings and growth in our balance sheet translated into a set one ratio of 14.6%. The 30 basis point increase in Q4 was driven by growth in our common shareholders equity of 5% as a result of earnings in the quarter outpacing the increase in risk-weighted assets, which grew by 2% quarter over quarter. Year over year, the rise in our set one ratio was the result of our decision to constrain loan origination growth and OSPI's regulatory limits on capital distribution, which put on hold plans to increase our dividend between 20 to 25% annually. With capital above the midpoint of our target operating range of 13 to 14%, we currently have 118 million of excess capital to deploy, or approximately $7 a share. As a reminder, this is still using standardized risk weights. Once we successfully complete the migration and receive approval from OSFI over the next few years to move to AIRB for risk weights, we could see this capital further boost by as much as 400 basis points after full adoption. Moving to credit reserves, our PCL for Q4 was $100,000, reflecting a release of $2.8 million under stages one and two which is about the same as our release in Q3. $1.7 billion of loans migrated to stage one from stage two. Stage three provisions increased quarter over quarter as a result of a return to more normal levels of non-performing lease formations in the quarter from a low in Q3. These changes are guided by the latest economic views from Moody's Analytics and our expert credit judgment which reflects current realities and uncertainties due to the current state of COVID-19. Given the level of uncertainty, we have made no changes to our five scenario weights, which reflects a more balanced view of the various scenarios. Our ACL at December 31st reflects a prudent build. 
given the impact of the pandemic on the economy since March and remains 79% higher than a year ago. If the economy unfolds consistent with our base case forecast, we would see an additional release of $4.7 million of reserves in 2021. Throughout 2020 and continuing in Q4, our ECLs have been dynamic and appropriate as we take into account and adjust using updated economic forecasts. As such in Q4, and in line with modest improvement in some key forward-looking economic indicators, our reserve release was very modest. We are maintaining overall levels significantly higher than pre-COVID and in our judgment at very rigorous and supportable levels. I know a question on your mind may be what is the path to a normalized allowance for credit losses look like? Many factors come into play here, but if our ACL provisioning levels move back to pre-pandemic levels, we would see our ACL drop by about $25 million. It's too early to put a pin in that. And again, we are reserved precisely how we believe we should be today for our business mix. Our impaired loans ended the year at $122 million, down $900,000 year over year, but up $27 million or 28% sequentially. The increase was largely due to an increase in single family and an $11 million commercial loan in Alberta. That loan is secured by a high quality commercial property with a current LTV of 39%. Accordingly, we do not expect to realize a loss. Our realized losses remain low in Q4 at $3.3 million or four basis points relative to our total assets compared to $2 million in Q3 and $1.5 million in the same period of last year. 2020 losses were $13 million or four basis points of our loan assets. And as a reminder, most of these are from our leasing book, with leases priced to reflect higher expected losses in this book. The realized loss rate is the result of the secured nature of our loan book and the rigor we have always applied to a borrower's ability to pay. A few other points to note when evaluating the credit risk of our loan portfolio. 100% of our loans are secured and 56% are insured. Our uninsured residential mortgage portfolio has an LTV of 61% and an average beacon score of 702. Commercial real estate loans which are concentrated in multifamily residential property, make up 72% of our commercial loans, of which 60% are insured against credit loss by CMHC. At year end, our portfolio largely followed Canada's population and economic distribution patterns. We focus on urban markets and have managed our exposure to regions most affected by oil and gas. Uninsured personal and commercial loans in Alberta are just 3% and 2% of total assets, respectively. Moving to our 2021 outlook, we expect to generate earnings growth in the range of 12 to 15%, driven by stable to increasing NIMS, loan growth of between 6 to 10% overall, but with some businesses significantly exceeding that, lower provisions for credit losses, and an efficiency ratio target of 39 to 41%. For personal banking, 
we expect EQ bank deposits to grow by another 20 to 30%, our decumulation business to lead all others in percentage growth by more than doubling its balances from 2020, prime to grow 12 to 15%, and alternative mortgages to increase between 5 and 8%. We expect our commercial bank to grow in the mid-single digits with specialized financing leading with 20 to 25% growth. The commercial finance group in business enterprise solutions will contribute 12 to 15% and 5 to 8% growth, respectively. This level of growth, combined with prudent cost management and further diversification in our cost of funds, will roll up to produce the results we're looking for at the bottom line. Today, we are reaffirming our medium term objectives of 15 to 17% ROE. 12 to 15% EPS growth, dividend growth between 20 to 25%, and 13 to 14% set one. We believe these objectives remain industry leading compared to our peer banks. These objectives assume that OSFI will permit us to resume dividend increases and allow us to consider potential common or, and or preferred share buybacks during the term covered by our objectives. As you will note, at the group level, we did launch an NCIB in December for up to 10% of the public float for both classes of shares. We acquired 3,300 preferred shares before year-end, and that's a good use of capital. As Andrew indicated, I would encourage you to review our updated MDNA and our overall outlook. With that, I will now turn it over to Andrew for closing remarks. Thank you, Chadwick. Uh, to summarize, in a new challenging year, Canada's bank, challenging bank outperformed. We added new customers at a record pace, launched more new products than at any time in our 50-year history, delivered more earnings than ever, and did an outstanding job of managing risk and protecting institutional strengths. As I've mentioned before to many of you, in order to understand equitable, you really need to experience EQ Bank. The quickest way to do so is to open an account. And you should have ample time to do this even before the Q&A session is over. And if you really want to be wild, send a few dollars to a friend of yours overseas and see how easy it is. With last October's organizational realignment into personal and commercial banking lines and talent additions and promotions, we enter 2021 with the means to fulfill our purpose, drive change in Canadian banking to enrich people's lives. Thanks for listening. And Julianne, I wonder if you could please open the line to to questions. Certainly. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. To withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Your first question will come from Jeff Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead, your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, good morning, I Jeff. Know you provided, morning. Um, I know you provided loan growth guidance for 2021, but just wondering from an origination perspective, like how would you describe your deal pipeline and, and the level of housing activity uh, relative to pre-pandemic? And then also, are you seeing the trajectory slow uh, from the high levels of activity that we were seeing in Q3 and Q4 of last year? Um, no, it, certainly for us, we're operating at higher levels than Q3, Q4. As I mentioned, Jeff, uh, you know, we, we had dialed back our credit appetite 
I think if we, you know, if there's one thing I would be self-critical of last year, we weren't quick enough to, you know, really understand how the housing dynamic, housing market would behave in response to interest rates and so on. Um, but I think in the last few days, for example, the application inflow is higher than at the same time last year. And, you know, this time last year was sort of pre-pandemic, so we were, we were, we were really rolling really, really strongly versus rocking this time last year. So it, you know, it feels like we've got a good, a good dynamic there. You know, I think our people are, and I think generally the market would be concerned about tightness of supply and, and how that might constrain the spring, mar spring market a little bit. But, uh, you know, generally I'm feeling pretty optimistic about where, where we're headed here. Okay. And, um, you know, if we go into this assumption that uh, the economic and employment recovery continues to improve, uh, but we continue to see, you know, what we're seeing in the housing market in terms of strong activity and, you know, quite strong home price appreciation, um, what would what would need to happen for you to feel like you need to maybe tighten some underwriting standards? You know, I think I think we're always looking at all the variables, as you know. Certainly, unemployment is always a big driver that that uh, is, you know, concerns about the future direction of unemployment are things that we, we look at first. Um, those are what the models always tell us is, is going to lead to you know potential challenges. We look at we we read the RBC uh, just to give you a plug here the you know the housing affordability. Um, is a concern, but I think you know what we're seeing there is that this drop in interest rates is is being so significant that affordability is actually you know more relaxed than it was a year ago. So I think those would be two of the big drivers. If I saw the Canadian government having a different tone around immigration, that would be a concern. But I think what we're seeing is a is a political consensus at all levels of government that, that uh, immigration is important to the vibrancy of Canada's future. Uh, clearly, the pandemic in the short term is is reducing immigration, but I, you know, I, I look forward to a more diverse, inclusive society that, that includes more people coming to Canada and bring their bringing their um, spirit to the place, and particularly the big cities, and and that's really a, a huge part of the theme for uh, uh, for equitable. But I think you could even see a more recent uh, policy direction by the government that they're, they're they're very in favor of that immigration story, and that that's certainly an area that we play to. Okay, and just my last question would be, um, you've talked about resuming your dividend growth strategy uh, when Austria lifts the ban on banks and insurers around that. Um, but I, I think even with the growth rate and the dividends um, that you've articulated, um, it's likely that you'll still grow your CET1 uh, above your 13 to 14% target. Um, and then you'll get, you know, arguably a, a big or, or significant boost from AIRB. But I know it's a little bit too early to say, um, but can you talk about how you think about that excess capital buildup and how to deploy it to kind of keep you within that 13 to 14% CET1 range? Yeah, I think you're exactly on, on track. So I think, you know, our core message is the original 20 to 25% that we projected you know, when, when we get an opportunity to increase dividends, we'll sort of jump back to the profile that you would have expected. So there'll, there'll be a, hopefully there'll be a fairly significant kind of step jump when we are allowed to increase dividends. Um, and clearly, we, we think we've got lots of opportunity to deploy capital into our businesses into attractive assets. So certainly, as, as you could gather, I think optimistic about that and, and focused on using capital in that way to, to generate additional returns for shareholders. And then I think the challenge is to think about, you know, how how else we would deploy capital. As you see, we put an NCIB in place, uh, but we're certainly sort of value-driven about how we, we would ever deploy an NCIB. And this is a debate of our board, so I'm, I may be speaking more ahead of the kind of the formal um, bank's position. But 
I think we would only enter it, yeah, only use the NCIB in any size if we really thought there was a that the, the stock was trading significantly below the uh, the kind of right value where it where for, to to make sure that's a value accretive to our shareholders. So um, that's a decision for later down the pipe, but certainly one of the tools that we think we might use. Uh, but I do think it's really important for a bank to uh, we, we don't we're not looking to hold on to our shareholders' money. Thirteen point five percent set one would feel extremely well capitalized. So uh, at some point we will look to return to that to shareholders uh, it, it, through other means. And a special dividend is something else we could consider. Okay, great, thank you. Your next question comes from Sihan Tunke from Stiefel. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Well, hey everyone. Uh, good morning, um, Andrew. Maybe just to start off, you know, with with the commentary in your in your opening remarks and then in the NDA last night, with potential um, rollout of additional products on the digital on the digital product shelf. shelf. Um, so, what's the potential for digital loan originations um, going forward? I mean. Is this some kind of, you know, um, I'm assuming it's some kind of consumer unsecured product. What's the potential, uh, if you can talk about it, what's the potential credit box you're looking at, uh, potential maximum loan per, per account? Can you give us any um, um, window into what you're thinking with launching that kind of product? You know, I think, I, I, I think you know, really where we'll, where we'll be going, first of all, is, is looking at mortgages being originated online. Frankly, that's, that's our core expertise. Uh, you know, unsecured would be further down the pipe, so I, I don't say that. I, I suspect we'll get there over the next few years, but I, it's not the first product up from a lending perspective. Um, I think the kind of the big picture here is as we are adding customers in the EQ Bank platform, now we have 185,000 customers and growing fast, as we mentioned. The opportunity to offer them other things that can enrich their lives and make and, and better solutions is there. Uh, you know, whereas when you have a smaller customer base, even if it's valuable to a few customers, it's, it's just not enough to, to uh, get you over the hurdles you need to invest to get going. So we do have a, uh, a project on deck to help those customers originate a mortgage through us, and, and uh, we expect to sort of be in market with that at some point this year. I think as we've observed, you know, we've observed that market for many years, and it's challenging to originate mortgages online technology and the consumer attitude may be getting there. So we certainly want to be a relatively early mover, but, but I spend a lot of time looking around the world at digital online mortgage origination. It's, it's certainly challenging, but we've got some really good point solutions in place now in our broker-driven business. If you start to link those together into a digital solution, uh, you know, there is certainly an opportunity for innovation over the next few years. Very interesting. And what about on the wealth management side? There was some commentary about that. Are you looking to perhaps partner with some of, with some of your fintech partnerships that you already have now, or what's the um, what's the outlook for you know wealth management uh, digital uh, products? So in, in the short term, in the wealth side, what I was referring to uh, is more deposit products, so uh, particularly foreign currency deposits or U.S. dollar deposits in the EQBank platform. Uh, I certainly, you know, we certainly continue to think about wealth um, in, in a slightly more sophisticated forms, and I, I think that would likely be in, in, in conjunction with some of our friends in the fintech world. Um, but, you know, certainly, again, as you know, have 5 billion deposits sitting in EQ Bank, so, so up dramatically year over year. 
one can imagine that with our kind of brand position in the marketplace, we can migrate some of those customers into slightly more complex equity style products, whether it's through Robo or simple ETF type products, you know, that seems to fit with our brand ethos, our challenger bank attitude. You know, we're certainly not somebody that would think that selling high any our mutual funds is an appropriate place to be in the marketplace. And don't think that that really enriches people's lives, uh, but we would be, you know, looking for those simple kinds of products. That's really interesting. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm to maybe a question for you from a modeling perspective. Um, as you talk about having increased mix to the A lending business and the mortgage side, um, and in the context of your insured multifamily business as well, um, how should we think about securitization income, you know, going forward? I know, you know, you mentioned it, it's up significantly over where it's been historically. It, it's moved around quite a bit on a quarterly basis. Um, so we expect to see that contribution to non-interest income fairly stable with Q4 levels um, going forward for this year, or how should we think about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll sort of start with some opening comments around that and hand it over to Chadwick. But uh, you know, the, the margins are still encouragingly encouraging in multis, but I would say the last couple of quarters have been you know, particularly wide, so we wouldn't expect that. You know, we would expect those spreads to come down this year. Necessarily, what we're building into our projections, uh, you know. Thinking at a bigger picture about fee-based income, we, we do have a couple of things we're working on outside of securitization that should see, you know, should see an increase in fee-based income over the next you know, year or two. But that's certainly a strategic priority for us to to add to that fee-based income, which you know, the biggest one we really see right now on the balance pool of P&L is, is, is multi-securitization. You know, Chadwick, have you got any more color to add to that? No, I think you, you covered uh, well with securitization spreads and while they may tighten more uh, in Q3 and Q4 high, we'll, um, we will see still added non-interest income. Uh, and, I, and I think it's the general overall theme, right? I think from, from a, you know, outside of securitization income, you know, we're expecting yields and spreads to remain pretty consistent with Q4 levels um, with, with cost of funds coming down, um, including from uh, flexibility to reduce our key bank rate, more wholesale diversification, including a covered bond launch. As more often across the board with, with yields and, and how we support a stable man. Uh, but non interesting income enters, enters on, on point. Right? That's one area we're very focused on uh, because it is, uh, there's, there's a lot in there that's repeatable and consistent and high quality. Thanks very much. I'll uh, jump back in the queue. Your next question comes from Etienne Ricard from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah. in terms of the 2021 outlook, uh, it's good to see growth um, in your alternative mortgage book expected to resume. I'm curious to hear um, how has the competitive landscape with larger lenders evolved over the past uh, couple of quarters, and, and notably in terms of uh, renewals. Um. So yeah, yeah, I mean it's a, it's a good question. I think we you know we did see in uh, the last couple of quarters of last year the, the renewal percentage dropping, and I think that's you know my observation over many years being in space is that that tends to happen when interest rates are dropping. So 
you know, it, it's uh, it's a little bit hard to renew. You can imagine even under a B20 scenario, as interest rates drop, uh, all of a sudden people that uh, didn't meet GDS, TD, TDS standards of uh, the TSIBs uh, you know, suddenly do, even if, even if their income hasn't changed. So that by its very nature makes that renewal a little more challenging. What's very encouraging though is in the last uh, few weeks, we've actually seen our renewal rates increase. So I'm not quite sure what's behind that dynamic. I think partly it's it's the um, the quality of our team servicing our customers, and and so, uh, so you know you know hats off to them. But uh, it, it's been an interesting thing to observe. So uh, uh, and you know if if that sneaks up a little bit, it makes it make quite a difference on uh, uh, you know what deliver. It's quite sensitive to that. All right. Okay. Perfect. Good to hear. Um, switching towards EQ Bank. Um, you know, this now accounts for, I believe, 28% of, of your deposits. Uh, that is trending favorably towards your objective to, I believe, have about a third of, of total deposits from EQ Bank. Given the momentum you've had so far, do you see this um, with the potential to go higher? And, and what would you expect the impact on your cost of funding to be over the uh, upcoming few years? Yes, we, we we do expect it to go higher at this point. Um, you know, I think I'd be concerned to go above seventy percent of our deposits coming from that seventy percent of our consumer deposits. So I, I still would like to have a piece of brokered in there because the nice thing about brokered is it it's a, it's a flow that you can turn on and off. Uh, but uh, you know, I'd certainly be comfortable up to seventy percent of our consumer deposits coming through your bank. And our view over time is that we we think we should be able to save about 20 to 30 basis points in, in deposits through EQ Bank compared to brokered. And that's our kind of longer term game plan. When we when we build it in the um, the lifetime value of a relationship in that in that market, that's sort of the numbers we're we're working on. And I think that's that's actually I mean, it's a critical dimension of thinking about this about EQ Bank is the way I think about EQ Bank. Is that roughly speaking, we believe that the lifetime value of each relationship is about a thousand bucks. So, uh, uh, and, and today we're acquiring customers for a very small amount of that number. So, uh, uh, I see my team here laughing at me as I say that, but that that is how I view it. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, think, you know, thinking about the lifetime value of the franchise is, is really a critical dimension of this. Okay, perfect. And, and last one for me on on, on covered bonds. Um, could you provide an update on market appetite and you know how I know you mentioned Q2 for the first issuing how sizable could that be and longer term um, you know how sizable could could cover bonds become as part of your funding uh, funding mix? Yeah, so Chadwick's been drilling into this area you know very actively since he's been here since he's arrived. Don't get Chadwick's any relatively recently arrived at the bank. This is first full quarter. So, Chadwick, maybe you can make some comments on, on how you're seeing the covered bond thing shape up. Yeah, sure. It's um, it is, it's going to become an incrementally more important source uh, of our cost of funding, I believe. And you know, I think your first question was, you know, what's the anticipation like, or what's the early reception like? And I'd say it's been very positive so far. We're exactly on track where we need to be with our project plan. Um, we've had some good actual uh, some some media coverage in Europe over the last week. Uh, including several outlets uh, as we're getting ready to issue um, 
it, so I, I do expect with how established the covered bond market is in Europe that it's going to be a pretty quick uptake. And um, this, this first issuance size we would target would be uh, but probably translate to about 400 million Canadian. And we'll keep growing this in multiple issuances uh, at first, at least until that, that five and a five and a half percent um, cap on our total assets. Uh, so you call that kind of 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 billion and growing. Uh, and then as that ceiling lifts, we'll continue to expand that. So it'll become an incrementally bigger source. And we would view that, you could call it, you know, 15 to 25 basis points plus cheaper than GICs as well. So this would become our, our lowest cost of fund uh, option and growing uh, and expanding. So we're, we're well positioned and we're on track for, uh, for an issuance. And, and as we say, you know, for the, the end of Q2, you know, we are um, talking more literally about the, the May time frame, but uh, sometime in May is our target. And I Chadwick, uh, just kind of mentioned something there that's impossible, not so much in passing, but that 5.5% limit on covered bonds, so 5.5% of total assets is the current regulatory limit. You know, we think there are really good public policy reasons why medium-sized banks should be able to go levels above that. I think we have a lot of buy-in from a positive across the banking community. That's the case. Um, and and so we would we would hope and expect that, that we'll get uh, we'll get some relief on that over time. Makes sense. Thank you for your comment. Your next question comes from Graham Riding from TV Securities. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, I think a lot of my questions have been answered, but the one I was just wondering about, you're guiding towards, you know, essentially high single-digit loan growth overall in 2021. And then when you look out over the medium term, you've got a 12 to 15% EPS target. Um, is, is that level of loan growth sufficient to, uh, to get you to 12 to 15% earnings growth? And if so, like, what are some of the key inputs that are implied? Uh, behind that, either with NIMS or expense growth or, or credit. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that question is definitely right in, in Chadwick's wheelhouse. So I wonder if Chadwick can handle it. Yeah, sure. Th- thanks, Grant. Good morning. Um, we're, we are confident we can maintain the asset growth in 2022 as well as 2021. So when you when you, when you run through this sheet, really on, on the NIM front, once you have that asset growth consistency on the NIM front, um, as the accumulation and other high growth businesses increase. Uh, we'll see some small NIM expansion as well, uh, especially with uh, higher Q, EQ bank deposits um, and that maturity of our cover bonds and depositing their program, plus more normalized PCLs. And our goal would be to stay within our expense uh, discipline, and I expect we'd also continue to maintain that in the 39 to 41% range into 2022. So you can see some, some good consistency, and then the change is growing as those higher growth businesses continue. Perfect. Yeah. I think this is a question we actually examined internally quite a bit, Graham, because it, you know, it's sort of on its face that uh, it's something I wanted to test with the team. And there's been a fair bit of scrubbing, but we're pretty confident that this, this all this all puts to the right the right approach. Yeah, but you have your all your economic scenarios, right? But our, we do expect those volumes to be changed somewhere to the 2021 and right through to Andrew's point. Okay, that's good for me. Thank you. As a reminder to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one. Your next question comes from James Gloin from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead, your line is open. Yeah, thanks, good morning. Morning, James. Um, 
excellent growth in the uh, EQ Bank deposit channel, uh, and you know, obviously very rapid uh, over the last couple of quarters. Uh, obviously picked up too. So I'm just curious: uh, are there are there any metrics or customer characteristics that you're looking at that would give you confidence in the stickiness of these uh, deposits relative to, let's say, like 2019 acquired deposits? Yeah, we we we. Uh... We look at something we call relationship accounts, which we measure by whether, for example, people are putting payroll in or using the transfer service, uh, and also the, the the age of the account. So we, we kind of assume that somebody's opened an account yesterday. You know, is, is we don't know yet whether we have a relationship uh, with that person. As, as you as you as we build any relationship in society, that's the case. So as 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 the thing. As, as accounts get older and we see those sort of transactions, we, we measure something internally, which we call we define as being a relationship account. We are seeing that slowly increase month over month as a percentage, which is pretty encouraging because we're actually, you know, obviously adding a bunch of new accounts, which by definition are not not meeting that that that, uh, that criteria. So uh, yeah, so we we seem to be moving in the right direction in that area. And I would say the growth has put a little bit of stress on our, more than a little bit of stress on our team, and, and we've had to, you know, we're stepping up our service levels to really try and resolve some of the issues. It's a little bit of complexity with these registered accounts, um, and of course we're doing this for the first time. But certainly we we are we have pretty ambitious targets around net promoter score NPS, which is you know widely used um, by by banks to assess themselves and. Generally, what you find is that customers, well, I mean, certainly the EQ Bank customers, would have much higher uh, NPS ratings of us than they would the traditional DSIBs. Uh, so it's, it's an, and that's actually a feature you see in many parts of the world. The digital banks tend to have a higher acceptance than the traditional banks. But so I find it's very encouraging, and we're, we are focused on that NPS measure as a driver to, as a, as a measure of satisfaction, and thereby you know kind of. Presumably, there's a relationship between the stability of the account if you've got very high customer engagement and satisfaction score. Okay, great. That sounds good. Um, <clears throat> as we think about the evolution of EQ Bank, uh, you mentioned payments as being uh, one of the areas of, uh, of growth potential. Can you can you give us a little bit more color as to how you're thinking about uh, payments and entering that space? Uh, and I, you know. Specifically, look at a recent transaction with like Neo Financial and HBC. Um, is is that is that a decent example to look at in terms of where you might take it, or are there other uh, avenues or strategies that you might put in place on the payment side? I, I don't think uh, you know t- teaming up with a retailer would be an area direction that we're going in. Uh, but uh, you know, first of all, you know, one of the objections to EQ Bank is that you can't. Make a payment in a merchant. You could send an e-transfer right there, and then if you're in front of that type of merchant, would accept it. But by and large, uh, you know that payment mechanism isn't isn't there. So you know, we want to do that, and hopefully we can do it in a relatively digital fashion. So get payment uh, you know, off the phone, uh, but it may probably there'll be a piece of plastic involved and you know, some plastic ra- some rails to, to ride that. But at that point, you really can uh, cut away and you know have no need for a traditional bank relationship. And our belief is that if we can offer that capability, we'll both stand that up for ourselves. There are a bunch of other companies, FinTech, some of our in that side of the industry that, that, that would like to ride on our rails and so where we can get fee-based revenue for providing that payment service. 
And the other thing that really fascinates us is the evolution of the real-time rail that Payments Canada has been working on for a number of years, but, but it's, it's really coming. It looks like it'll be coming to fruition in the next 18 months or so. Um, and so we, we believe as well that maybe a business to be built around providing an on-ramp to the, to the real-time rail for you know, non-traditional financial players. So um, that's how we're thinking about payments. We do have you know, some people internally focused on payments now as a, as a line of business. But the first, the first piece of that is really standing up payments for our EQ Bank core customers. Okay, that's, uh, that's good. Thanks very much. Thank you. Your next question comes from Stephen Boland from Raymond James. Please go ahead, your line is open. Uh, good morning, guys. First question is, I uh, just want to confirm, maybe you've said this, just about the earnings uh, growth objective, the 12 to 15%, that's assuming uh, provisions. Is that assuming a release of, of some provision or a normal amount of provision? I just want to clarify. I, mean, I would, would point out, Stephen, that we've done this, I think ever since I've known you, we've been doing, we, we've grown earnings at this rate, so uh, I don't see why you should be surprised about that projection, but I'll, I'll let Chadwick uh, uh, answer the kind of question, that very specific question about the earnings issue. Yeah, or our, um, our, our, the earnings growth as we provided um, doesn't change our scenarios. So while we said that that 4.7 million, if the base case plays out, uh, that that would be incremental right, right now our, 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 our model or our forecast doesn't assume uh, that additional release it's okay you know, and then when you break it down right it's uh, that would be one, one of the key points for this year is, is q4 is a good anchor to build on so even if we look at expenses we probably grow expenses more somewhere around to how we grew in q4 over q3 um, and we're going to continue to target revenue growth accordingly while well, we you know, move toward that, that 39 to 41% efficiency ratio. Um, but there's still there's still too many uncertainties, right, to assume we're going to have this big release and you know, that's, that kind of moves against the models. But right now, we, we don't need that release to hit our, hit our targets. Okay, that's great. And then just a second, I'm not sure if I'm reading into this too much in the MDNA. It says something about the alternative single-family uh, channel that a resumption of pre-COVID-19 underwriting requirements uh, beginning in August. And I'm not sure if I'm reading into the word requirements. I wasn't sure what that meant. Yeah, I think requirements is probably, you're probably picking up a word where we could have could have had better expression in the MDNA there, Stephen, so we, we will thank you for that. Um, you know, essentially what we have, what happened in March and April is we, we've cut back the loan to values almost across the board by about 5% in the anticipation that the housing market would take um, Take a bit of a, you know, a dip with rising unemployment and the effect of the pandemic. So I think that that's really what we're trying to refer to there. So we we drew our lending envelope within some, you know, we had a tighter lending envelope than most of our competitors as a sort of risk mitigation approach. And what that did was was temper the originations through much of the summer and into, and went frankly into the into the beginning parts of Q4. Right. It was only as we started to adjust and have a more confidence in where the housing market was going and you know, kind of sharpen our competitive edge in the marketplace that so we, we started to get back on our feet from a from a you know volume of new originations perspective and as Chabot mentioned, you know, our belief based on the kind of inside baseball data from the industry is that uh, in Q four that we would we would we were once again the leader in all uh, mortgage originations as we would expect to be. Okay. That's great. Great quarter guys. Thanks. 
Your final question will come from Sihan Tanke from Stiefel. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Oh, I thought um, maybe just uh, to quickly squeeze in something on AARD transition. Um, we talked about 2023 potential target. Um, are you in a phase of like, how is that progressing? Like I know some of the other um, industry participants are running you know, parallel model periods. Are you in that position now? And the follow-up to that would be as you look at AARB and the impact on your on your competitiveness and cost of funds, do you see over the long term, say three, five years out, to commercial um, banking to become a higher rating and um, in your earnings uh, profile? Thanks. Yeah, the first part of that question, I'll hand over to Ron in one second. Uh, the second part is is really you know drives back to our fundamental thinking about AARB. Uh, today, we risk rate all of our commercial assets at 100%, and that's uh, overly punitive for some really good assets. Um, so if you've got a fully leased apartment building, it really shouldn't be 100% risk rated. So we, we often find we have customers where we help them. We've helped them buy an apartment building. They might refurbish it. Cash flow goes up, and then we're uncompetitive in, the, in, a, in a, the sort of renewal of that loan. So that's and, and in that case, we would be, you know, we'd give it where giving up uh, high-quality, low-risk loans because they because of risk rates. Uh, and what I would say is, you know, Ron and his team are doing a great job in moving us along the ARB curve. It's a, it's a complicated project, as you're probably aware. But Ron, I wonder if you can give some kind of color on where your team is at on that. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Um, yeah, so we're actually in a great spot right now. We don't have our entire portfolio running in parallel, but major, major portions of it are and major business lines are. Uh, so throughout 2021, we'll be refining that approach to running in parallel uh, in preparation for making an, an application or, or furthering the application with OSFI um, in about a year. Um, so we've made terrific progress with building the models, operationalizing the models, and now uh, working on the reporting so that you could run and compare you know, the standardized um, to our ARB approach. And that's where a lot of the guidance that we're giving you in terms of uh, capital uh, differences under an ARB regime would come into play. So uh, beyond that point, then we'll be working with OSFI to uh, refine and then make sure that it meets their needs for approval. But um, we're in a, we, we've really advanced significantly in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. And just as a reminder, when the pandemic hit, we sort of dialed back investment in ARB or slowed things down with in the belief that the regulator would have other issues to deal with, and, and of course the senior executive change of the regulator as well. So, you know, our, our thinking is that, that we did exactly the right thing, and I think that's what we're seeing with other others in a similar spot to us. Uh, it, it, you know, unfortunately, pandemics do slow down this kind of development, so to be well understood. Thanks very much. Thank you. We have no further questions. I'd like to turn the call back over to Mr. Andrew Moore for any final comments. Well, thank you so much, Julianne. Um, as there are no further questions, uh, you may wish to know that Equitable will hold its virtual annual meeting of shareholders on May 12th with our Q1 call one week earlier. In the meantime, we're always ready and willing to engage. Uh, thank you and have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. 
See you next time.